There are lots of reasons out there why people make journeys. Um, on a road, I'm driving down a road, lots of other cars on the road, some of them maybe just out for a ride that day, some of them maybe going to work, some of them delivering things, some of them maybe somebody taking a friend or a neighbor to hospital for an appointment, maybe some folk are beginning their holidays, maybe some folk coming back from their holidays, all kinds of reasons. But what reason or what reasons were there, were there for the journey that Jesus took when He was born as one of us? As we read last week in John chapter 1, the eternal Word who was with God in the beginning, through Him, through whom all things were made, He became flesh. He moved in. He came alongside us. Why? Why, why would the Creator want to become a creature? Why would He want to take on the limitations and the fragility of our nature? Why would He want to come among us in a way that opened Him to pain, to infection, to hunger, to tiredness, to bruising? Why? We understand easily the reasons for the car journeys that I mentioned. People need to get to the work. People are going on holiday. People are going to a hospital appointment. We understand why people make these journeys, but why did the eternal Son of God, who is with God in all the perfection and glory of the heavenly places, why did He take the journey to come to earth as one of us with all that that involved? Why did God become human. Now, we begin to answer that why by reminding ourselves of what we were insisting upon last week, that the claims that Jesus made Himself about His own life means that He can't possibly just be a good man or a wise teacher. He claimed to be one with God. He claimed to be eternal. He claimed to be worthy of worship. He claimed to be able to forgive. Now, we're following in these weeks the outlines of our Come and See series, which is a series to introduce the Gospels to others, a series that doesn't pretend that it can answer every question about everything, but which concentrates on the main stuff of the main claims of the Christian faith, and it's all about Jesus. He is God's Word to us. We could not find God by ourselves. We could not work out who He is or what He's like, but God has spoken, and He's spoken to us primarily in Jesus. And He came among us. That is, He had a say, unlike you and unlike me, He had a say on whether or not He was born, where He was born, when He was born. And He said, okay, I'll do this. But why? Why, when it was so restricting and so costly and so sort of thing to do, why did the eternal Word take on flesh? Why did the Creator become a creature? So, who was Jesus was what we looked at last week. Why did He come? Why did He make that journey is what we're looking at this week. Now, all of us have different roles in life to different people, to some folks, you know, you might be a, somebody might be a brother, to someone else a son, to someone else a neighbor, to someone else an employee, to someone else a boss. We all have different roles, and Jesus Himself had a whole variety of roles in life. 
He was to Mary and Joseph a son. He was to other people a neighbor. He was to some a teacher, to others a healer, and to some he was a troublemaker, a threat to the power base. But the New Testament is absolutely clear that among all of these roles, what stands out as the most significant is that Jesus came not to be somebody's son, not to be a brother, not to be a neighbor, not to be a teacher, not to be a healer, but to be a savior. Here is a trustworthy saying, verse 15 of the passage that John read for us. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, that's something that was said about Jesus before He was born. Back in Matthew chapter 1, um, <clears throat> the angel giving a message to Joseph said that Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. Why are you calling Him Jesus? Because He will save His people from their sins. And Jesus Himself, during His ministry, affirmed that that he, he said, for example, in Luke 5, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then on that, that last night before the crucifixion, when he was having his final meal with the disciples, he gave them instructions about continuing this meal in memory of him. And what did that meal focus on? Not his ability as a teacher, not him being a healer, not him being a wise leader, but being a Savior who made a sacrifice for sins. So, Matthew 26, this is the blood of the covenant, said Jesus, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I think it's very significant that on that last night with His disciples, knowing that it was His last night with them before the cross, Jesus wasn't looking back to all He had done and all He had taught them, he wasn't saying, now remember I've said to love your neighbor, and remember that story about the Good Samaritan. Remember I said, love your enemies, and he wasn't doing that kind of thing. No, on that last night, he was still looking forward to what he was about to do, the sacrifice on the cross that was going to be the culmination, the climax of his work, and then saying to his followers that that was how he was to be understood and remembered in the breaking of bread and in the drinking of wine. He came to be a Savior, to make a sacrifice for sinners. It's a trustworthy saying, 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But then who, who then are the sinners that He's come to save? Was it just the folks in Judea 2,000 years ago? Well, clearly not, because Jesus told His disciples to go into the, all the world and said He would be with them always. Clearly, Jesus understood that what He was doing had meaning and significance for all people, all time, everywhere. So, was it just the very bad people throughout the world that He had in mind? Was He just thinking about murderers, about pedophiles and the like? Well, if that's who sinners are, then how do we, or how does anyone else for that matter, decide who are the very bad people? How bad do you need to be? 
You killed somebody, that's really bad. But what if you haven't killed? What if you're just a bully? Is that, is that bad? And how much bullying makes you a sinner? I mean, it was... You see, when Jesus spoke about sin, he didn't just confine himself to these big, outrageous things. He talked about not trying to get your own back. He talked about the things you were thinking about. He talked about how you were spending your money and, and so on. And he spoke about sin not only as what we do, but also about when we don't do and don't think and don't say what we should. Sin was not turning the other cheek. Sin was not loving our enemies, not, not sharing with those in need. And he set the bar incredibly high indeed, didn't he? When asked to sum up the law, he said this in Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. There's a standard. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's what God calls for, and quite frankly, that's beyond our reach, isn't it? None of us have done that perfectly. So, before God, we are all sinners. As Paul said in Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, it's not as if there are two ways into the kingdom of God, a way that decent folk gain entry because they're nice, and then a way that's full of grace and mercy for those who have been sinners and repented. All of us, each and every one of us, have sinned. All of us, each and every one of us, have not loved God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and not loved our neighbor as ourselves. So, sinners are not just folks like Hitler or Osama bin Laden. Captain Tom Moore, he's a sinner. Mother Teresa was a sinner. Mandela was a sinner. Gandhi was a sinner. The folk in the post office, they're sinners. Your window cleaner, the bus driver, the nice person who was kind to you in the shop, all sinners because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For no matter how much good we've done, no matter how hard we've tried, none of us have been perfect. None of us have loved God with all our heart, soul, and mind and loved our neighbor as ourselves. Now, when the Bible says that all of us are sinners, it's not saying that there's nothing good in any of us. And it's also not saying that we're all equally bad or equally evil. What it's simply saying is that none of us are perfect. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of God's standards. We've all been affected by sin, and all of us do sin. Sin affects our minds so that we're unable to think God's thoughts after Him. Sin affects our hearts so that we set our affections on unholy desires. It affects our feelings so that our emotions take us in all kinds of unhelpful and wrong directions. Sin affects our will so that we do not choose what is good. And it's not that we never get anything right. We do. But it's that none of us have always got everything right. So Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 1.15, came into the world to save sinners. And that doesn't restrict in any way who he has come for 
for all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But where then does that take us, or where does that leave us? Well, it has meant a breakdown in relationship with God, a barrier between a holy God and us who are not perfect and pure. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 59 says, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Just like a cloud coming between us and the, and the sun, there's something blocking this out. Sin does that. It, it blocks the presence of God from us. It means that we're guilty because we've broken God's commandments. Sin has caused hurt and estrangement from one another. It brought suffering to us and to others. Sin has even ruined our own peace with our own selves. Whether it's in a sense of or having too much sense of importance, or whether it's having too low self-esteem, sin just makes us difficult with ourselves. And it's the source of death in the world. It has robbed humanity of its original eternity. And most of all, sin takes us before God in judgment with nothing to say for ourselves. It says in Hebrews 9, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due to us. And he says a similar thing in, in Romans chapter 3, and, and there he even said, underlines the fact that we've no excuse. We know, he says, whatever, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. That is, I, I need to stand before God as righteous, because God is righteous. And there's the problem, I'm not. I need to be able to have some defense for my sinfulness, and I don't. I need to atone for all that I've said and thought and done that was wrong, and for all the good that I haven't done and haven't said and haven't thought. And I can't atone for all of these things. The one who is guilty cannot remove his own guilt. The one who is alienated and estranged cannot reconcile himself to God or to his neighbor. The one who is embattled cannot defeat the devil, and the one who is suffering cannot remove all pain. And even if I could do some of these, then I certainly cannot make myself immortal. So I stand before God in judgment, my mouth silenced, accountable to God, as Paul says, in Romans 3.19. And that's the place that we're all in. Because if we are to be saved at all, someone else is going to have to do it. Someone else is going to have to do the saving. We sinners cannot save ourselves. And that is why Jesus made the journey. That is why the eternal Word became flesh. That is why the creature, sorry, the Creator became a creature. He came into the world, verse 15 of 1 Timothy 1, to save sinners. You see, God would not be a holy God if He were to say, sin doesn't matter, and we need not worry about its effects and its implications. 
And not only would he not be holy if he said that, then there, there would be no justice for anything. No justice if God simply let us off the hook or chose to hold us not accountable. We deserve only damnation. But because God is love, He has chosen to provide a Savior. It's only because He has provided a Savior that there is any hope for any of us or all of us. Far too many folk make the assumption, and, and, and if you think about this, there's not really any good reasons for this assumption. Far too many folk make the assumption that we live here, we die, and then we pass on to some better or some peaceful place. Just like, you know, people finish at primary school and then move on and start at secondary school. It's as natural or as automatic as that. Now, that, that's not what Jesus taught. And besides, if that were the case, Jesus wouldn't have needed to make that journey. The eternal Word would not have needed to make Himself come, become flesh with all the hurt and pain and vulnerability and, and everything that was involved in that. You know, we just pass through these stages. And it would have meant that Jesus' coming was not what He said it was, a coming in order to save sinners. Now, some of you will be old enough, and um, <clears throat> I might make the point that I'm not old enough for this. I just missed it, actually. Um, some of you will old, be old enough to remember that that transition from primary to secondary school wasn't quite as straightforward and as automatic as it now is. You had a, a test. There was judgment in between. There was a thing called the 11 plus. Moving on from one stage to another was done after the judgment. So, think for a moment of life here as primary school, life in God's eternity as secondary school. In between, there's the 11 plus. In between, there's the judgment. And what's the standard? What's the pass mark? 100%. That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself. No qualifications, no, no compromises, 100%. Total purity, total sinlessness, total righteousness, total holiness, total goodness. That's what's needed. Because if that's not the case, then the kingdom of God would be spoiled by our presence and decay would set in again, just like it has done in this planet and in life here. And none of us are so perfect that we score 100%. So heaven would be empty were there not a Savior to provide for us, whether or not a Savior who came to save sinners, who bore our guilt, who reconciled us to God, who would take damnation from us and, and offer us eternal life. And it is because God loves like that that He is committed to renewal, to restoration, to reconciliation. He is committed to saving sinners. That is why the Father allowed the Son to go into such suffering. That is why the Son was willing to be born, to live such a life, and to die in our place. 
That is why the Holy Spirit sustained Jesus through that time in ministry, because Father, Son, and Spirit love us, and we needed someone to come. We needed God to come, for only God could sort this out. Now, how Jesus did that through His death and resurrection is, is what we will look at next and Come and See and in our series that will follow next Sunday. It follows on from the who. Who was Jesus? Why? Why did He come to save sinners? How? How did He do that? But even at this stage, let me underline that all again, again, this is not some automatic moving through stages thing. This judgment where 100% is needed, we are, we are damned by that, but there is one who stands in our place. If we allow Him to stand in our place, if we say He is my Savior, we can be in the kingdom of God by saying Jesus is King. Says, Jesus, is that what you've done? Jesus, your Savior? Are all your eggs in the basket that Jesus died and rose for me? Jesus didn't come to make the world a wee bit better. He came to be its Savior from sin. He came to take us through judgment because He died and rose for us into God's kingdom. The gospel confronts us with that challenge and choice about making Him our King in order that we might be part of His kingdom. Let us pray. Lord God, again, we thank You for the greatness of Jesus coming, the greatness of His stooping to come right down to us and among us the laying aside of His glory and the taking on of the likeness of sinful flesh, sharing our vulnerability, our fragility, our limitations and weakness, and to do that so that He, as one of us, might sacrifice for our sins and might, as our great High Priest, as one of us, present us as righteous in Your sight. Lord, help us again to be moved and struck by what He did for us. And might, us, might we better shape our lives in response to that kind of love. In Jesus' name, amen.